here Michel Vino, and you are listening to The Next Page, the podcast of the United Nations Library Geneva, where we aim to advance the conversation on multilateralism. This episode is part of our library talk series, where we select and record discussions that we host in the library events room. And today's discussion will bring you insights on the role women had in the early years of international organizations and how it impacted the development of both international affairs and international thought. Katharina Ritzler, researcher at the University of Sussex, and Miriam Piguet, PhD student and researcher at the Global Studies Institute at the University of Geneva, shared their research on these questions. They are both part of a growing effort to uncover the role of women in history and bring them and their contributions back into the narratives. So they both sat with Pierre-Etienne Bourneuf, who is a scientific advisor here at the UN Library Geneva, to share their results and the challenges of their research, and to discuss the broader context of internationalism. Hope you enjoy. Good afternoon. Welcome to the UN Library Geneva. My name is Pierre-Etienne Bourneuf. I'm scientific advisor here at the library, and it's a pleasure for me um, to welcome you and to welcome our two panelists for this elaborate talk. Um, the idea behind today's discussion is very simple. Despite increasing evidence of the involvement of women for the development of international thought, women today are still marginalized from the core narrative, historical narrative on international politics. So how can we explain this? Are women absent or are they just ignored? What is the contribution of women for the development of international thought? These are the main questions we are going to cover with our two panelists, with Katerina Ritzler and Miriam Piguet. So, Katharina Ritzler, you are a lecturer in international history, in American history at the University of Sussex. Um, you are also co-investigator of the uh, Leverhulme Research Project on women and the history of international thought that started last year and will go on to 2022. And uh, currently, you are working on a book manuscript on the um, American philanthropy and the uh, conception of the international in the first half of the 20th century. Miriam Piquet, you are a PhD student at the Global, Institute, uh, Global Studies Institute here at the University of Geneva. Uh, your dissertation focuses on the careers of women in the Secretariat of the League of Nations and in the Secretariat of the United Nations. And you also collaborated with other historians, women historians, with the Associations Les Squad to change uh, the names of the streets in Geneva, to name actually uh, the uh, streets after women. So to start our debate, our discussion, I would like to ask you, Katerina, can, can you explain us the conception of international thought um, during the first half of the century? And can you explain us also the marginalization, why women are so absent from history? Thank you very much, Pierre-Etienne. Uh, thank you very much for this kind introduction. Well, 
women are obviously a very large group. And um, together with my colleagues in the Leverhulme project on women and the history of international thought, we have tried to find ways to talk about all these issues, the erasure of women from histories of international relations, histories of international thought, which is a problem because if you look at um, anthologies, textbooks, etc., women are rarely included as uh, important thinkers. It's really about the importance of women intellectuals in conceptualizations of international relations. So the way we decided to go about it was to um, look at three separate projects in this larger project of recovering women's international thought and also evaluating it. So um, the first pillar of the project is to look at women thinkers, women intellectuals that are already recognized, that are regarded as important intellectuals in their own right. Uh, a good example here would be Hannah Arendt. Uh, so somebody who is recognized as a political theorist, but not necessarily as a great in the canon of international relations. So that's one pillar of the project, to write women who already have received recognition as intellectuals into the history of international relations as a discipline. The second pillar is really to look at women who were scholars, academics, but for whatever reason have not been recognized as international relations thinkers. And again here, um, the, the issue is that there were many uh, women who, so, for example, taught in universities at Oxford, Cambridge, women's colleges in the United States, but who have then been written out of the history of international relations as a body of knowledge. And the third pillar really is to look at places of knowledge production that are not in academia, um, say think tanks, but also international organizations like the League of Nations or the United Nations, and to look at women and the intellectual production in those spaces and to write them into the history of international thought. Um, so uh, sorry for this long-winded explanation, but I just want to answer the second question that you asked me, and uh, that is explain um, the marginalization of women. I think there are two things that are happening. First of all, um, obviously there are structural issues with discrimination at, at the time of, uh, in, in the early 20th century. Um, that's clearly an issue. I don't want to minimize that, but it is actually surprising how many women were able to publish on international relations, to lecture on international relations, to be actually accepted as public authorities, especially in the Anglo-American context. And I think it's our fault that we have forgotten them, that we haven't been looking. So in some ways, this is also, um, the project also tries to come to terms with, with that issue. And that's very much an issue in contemporary IR as a, as a field of academic um, knowledge. Do you think that history has a gender and internationalization has a gender? Because masculinity, as you say, it prevails still today. That, that's a really interesting question, and I think it's something, again, that you have to look at historically. I think the gender, if you will, of international relations changes. Um, in, say, the 1920s, international relations is a sort of subject that is emerging. It's a bit of, um, for want of a better word, a, a Mickey Mouse subject that is actually quite open to women, that is not really considered to be... Uh, sort of weighty academic discipline yet, and this masculinization of international relations knowledge, to my mind, and again, I want to stress here, I'm looking at the Anglo-American context, is, is something that happens 
in mid-century, and I haven't found the precise answer yet, but uh, just to give you an example, um, the Foreign Policy Association, an important American think tank, international relations think tank, had um, the majority of its um, researchers were women in 1929. So that tells you something about the gender of international relations and how it maybe shifts in the course of the 20th century. And Miriam, um, regarding the League of Nations and the United Nations, what was and what is the role of women within these two organizations? So I think to answer Katarina, she's very right in the sense that you, you see that there are women, and from the 1920s in the League of Nations, half of the employees are actually women, but they have very specific roles, and that has to be stressed. I'll say the first role, and you see a big continuity in this, is the question of welfare and social. And it starts with Crody. So Rachel Crody, she was the head of the social and opium section in the League of Nations Secretariat. And then there is kind of a continuity with small breaks from time to time. So in the 50s, you have Alva Mirdal, that she was a really big thinker in Sweden, and she was the chief of the social section in the UN at the beginning of the Secretariat, and then left and head the UNESCO for a few years. And so you have this kind of continuity. After her, you have Julia Henderson. She's not very known, but she worked uh, in this position for like 20 years. So it's kind of like women have a specific place, a specific space in these organizations. And it's what we call, or sociologists, they call it uh, the rhetoric of complementarity. So it's this idea that you have a role that is specific to women, for example, here is social question. So it opens door for them because they can work in the UN and in the League of Nations, but it also closes other doors so they cannot access to other things. And they had to wait really long time, for example, to find women in the, just, uh, the legal department. And then, of course, the majority of women, they work in secretarial and clerical position. To give you like just an example, in the 1950s in the UN Secretariat, you have 76% of the women that are part of the Secretariat that are working in uh, general services. To give you even a more strong example about how much is important and how, how many women are doing this, um, you have to think that Marguerite Anse, she was the first Undersecretary General of the UN, named uh, in 1987, first woman to be Undersecretary General. She wrote out an autobiography, and she called it Never Learn to Type, a woman at the United Nations. So it really stressed how much uh, they were kind of stuck with this idea of they have to do this secretarial work, even though they had a higher position. They were often asked by the, by, by the men to do this work. So that was kind of difficult. When we talk about women at the League of Nations, the first idea that pops in my mind is the Noblemer report that was presented in 1924, uh, when actually Noblemer actually rejects the idea of imposing a uniform for the women that are working at the uh, League of Nations. And the speech that made actually Noblemer uh, at the assembly, he, when he mentions, he refers to women, he called them uh, children, uh, poor children that are very quiet. So even for a liberal, like uh, Noblemer, that was in favor of the integration of women, there was this very stereotyped uh, perception of women. I think, obviously, it had very major implications for the role of women. How do you, was there an evolution of this perception at the time of the League of Nations, but also for the UN? Did the role of women evolve also as a, the perception of the role of women evolved? 
Yeah, fortunately it did. And I think what we have to think about is that they organized for this to change. And they did it from the very beginning. So international women organizations, they exist from the end of the 19th century. And at the beginning of, of the 20th century, you had millions of women part of a women organization. The first thing they did was to, of course, fight for the right of women to work in the League of Nations uh, during the Paris Conference. And they were really organized, even though sometimes they were not agreeing with each other. There were couples of different organizations with different mindsets and different feminist visions. But they, when they needed to, they would organize. So they organized a parallel conference at the same time as the first Versailles Conference. And they asked a memorandum and they asked for women to be added in the covenant, saying that the covenant should say that women can work on the same terms as men. And they actually won. But it was also uh, a result of a specific political and economic environment. So first of all, it was nice to have women in the League of Nations because you needed them to do the hand typing. So that was the first thing. And of course, you were in a, in a time in the world that the question of suffrage were becoming bigger and bigger. So it was a good moment. And I'm, I'm not sure in another moment it would have been possible. Katerina, um, and also Miriam, actually, what makes your research particularly interesting uh, to me is first that you are doing research in the archives, so to restore the role of women, but also you do not focus on eminent thinkers. Uh, you have a broader approach. And I would like to ask you, so you have two different approaches on, we will say, a similar topic, who were these women that actually contributed uh, to the development of international thought? What were their backgrounds? What are literally uh, their contribution? Um, I mean, there's obviously a huge diversity here. And um, obviously, you have to look not just at specific organizations or academia, but as you say, you have to really cast your net uh, much wider. I think what's also been important for our project is to um, take into account uh, not just sex discrimination, but also racial discrimination and the thought of African-American women or women who are in some uh, way part of the African diaspora. And that leads to interesting outcomes when you read women writing on the same topic, but coming from very, very different um, places. So if you read, for example, um, a text on education by a woman internationalist in the 1920s, Eileen Power. She's a British historian, and she's very positive about education in schools for internationalism. If you read that against a text from somebody like Amy Ashwood Garvey, who's uh, from the Caribbean, who's a Pan-Africanist, a very, very important thinker in Pan-Africanism, co-founder of the UNIA, so with Marcus Garvey, an important figure in Garveyism, who also writes on education, but from a completely different perspective, who talks about how she found out about international politics, not from her school education, which um, sidelined issues like slavery or imperialism, but who actually goes uh, to her, her ancestors um, through her father to find out about her family history and about how that really teaches her about international politics. So if you, if you look at these contrasts, you really realize that it's very difficult to make these kind of sweeping statements about women and their vision because um, these identities are, they intersect with many other identities, whether that's class, race, religion, even um, 
a lot of the women that we've looked at were Jewish um, and and reflected on their Jewishness. So it's really impossible to say that there's this one woman thinker that is emblematic for women's international thought. And I think that's that's been important for us to emphasize. But um, you were asking me about um, how to find women or more about their background and what mm -hmm. can be considered their contribution, how yeah. women, even if they are the diversity, as you said, is very important, they contributed to the development of international thought. Um, I think one way of looking at this is to say, well, of course, women made all sorts of different contributions. We have women writing on geopolitics. We have women writing on um, decisionism, women who are pacifists, liberal internationalists, um, realists, imperialists, anti-imperialists. So it's very difficult to say there's one political position that they inhabit. What you can say, though, is that there are structural issues that structure intellectual production. For example, the fact that women can't, um, that there are structural barriers to education, um, to higher education in particular, that women cannot take full degrees at the universities of Oxford and Cambridge in Britain, that there is a certain um, push uh, for women in certain professions, which is when you get things like, uh, you know, secretarial work, which is classic women's work, librarianship, teaching. That's, I think, a reason why you have a lot of women thinkers, which is something that we found, who were interested in popular education. Uh, scholars who were well-published, who had scholarly monographs, but who also took time to write pamphlets cheap pamphlets that were then distributed who were committed to that kind of popular dissemination. Um, another good example here is Merce Tate, who's an African-American scholar. She's a historian, a realist, but she also takes time to give lectures to um, African-American soldiers in World War II because for her that sort of educational role is really important. And I do think that gender and gender expectations are important here. I completely agree. And and especially this matter of intersectionality. When you do this research, I think it's very important to be aware that uh, these women have very different backgrounds. And especially if you look like me at an international organization, you have so many different backgrounds. And what is sometimes difficult is that you like a lot of information. And one information that you always have is the nationality. But the nationality doesn't really mean anything in the, I mean, it means a lot, but it means in the 1960s, uh, someone can be of a Chinese nationality, but coming from a colonial family and being white. And you never know that. So you have to look behind this and like find pictures or something that will tell you actually what is their background. And this is something I, I find quite difficult, actually. And yeah, like, there is really this very important thing of having an intersectional look added in terms of also a social background. Because who were these women? Where, where did they study? And especially if you look at the Global South, I think that really makes sense. You have one example that is Suzanne Commer-Sylvain. She was from Haiti. And she was from a, um, a family that fought a lot for independence in Haiti. But she worked at the UN and she worked in the Department of Trusteeship. And she was actually the first woman anthropologist in Haiti. And then she left the UN. And this is also what is interesting. Is Often, uh, women that have an important role in their country, they will cross by the UN, like spend a year or two, and then go away and do what they, what they were doing, like, for example, anthropologists. What is striking uh, from your research is the diversity of the backgrounds, of the agendas, of 
the uh, research of uh, these um, women. Katerina, can you just tell us a little bit more about the role of women, maybe outside international organizations, and maybe you have some examples? Okay, um, I'll maybe talk a bit about one woman who uh, leaves the League of Nations to go and work for an international relations think tank slash philanthropic foundation. So um, that's Florence Wilson, who is uh, very important for the library, the first librarian, head librarian of the League of Nations, who then goes and works for the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, so she becomes part of their outreach program and um, is trying to set up international relations clubs, especially in the Balkans and the Near East in the 1920s and 1930s. You find, I find, um, a lot of women who move between academia and other spaces that allow them to work in that field, international relations broadly defined. So whether that those are uh, voluntary organizations, civil society organizations, or think tanks. And I'm, I'm particularly interested in think tanks because, again, they often take quite... Um, th there are enormous differences between different think tanks and how they treat the woman question, which is a really pressing question, I think. You've already mentioned this issue of masculinity, but especially in an American context, there is a question of what is international relations? What is its gender? Is this a serious business that is really only open to men, or is this something that is much more, much broader, that includes women, et cetera, et cetera? And in the US, you have two examples. You have the Foreign Policy Association, which is very open to women. I've already mentioned that. But then you also have the Council on Foreign Relations, which is still around. It's very much an establishment think tank. And it actually doesn't allow women to become members until the 1960s. So there's a formal exclusion of women. Um, women are also not invited to give talks until, I believe, the mid-1950s. So uh, that question is answered differently in different contexts. And um, I think think tanks are particularly interesting because uh, women are always involved. They have to be because somebody has to do the typing, as you say, Miriamo, or indeed run the library. So it's not as if women are absent, but it's about whether they are allowed to be public members, whether they are allowed to be involved in public discussions of foreign affairs. And I think in the 20th century, which is really also structured by the question of who makes foreign policy, is there such a thing as a democratic foreign policy? Is that even possible? Are affairs of state uh, really, can they be opened up to everybody or not? Um, I think that question is still with us in a sense, and uh, but that question also connects to who is part of the public and are women part of the public on equal terms as men and different organizations answer that question differently. So I think you really also have to get into um, not just the history of women's intellectual production, education, but also organizational history um, of specific spaces that are closely linked to international politics and to national discussions of international politics. And um, Miriam, this diversity within the international organizations led to some contradictions sometimes, or do you see that women actually uh, had the same ideas? As I said before, you, you had a lot of women international associations or women international organizations from the end of the 19th century, but they, they quickly, 
quite quickly divided. And you have the first break in 1904, when the International Alliance of Women is created against the International Congress of Women, because they, uh, they say that the International Congress was too nice with anti-suffragist feminists. So you have every type of feminism. You have Catholic feminism. You have every type you can think about. And they all have their own kind of association. But as I said before, when times come, they know how to organize themselves. And they did it uh, with the Paris Conference and the Article 7 in the League of Nations Covenant. But they also did it, for example, uh, at the beginning of the UN in 1958 with the Convention of the, on the Nationality of Married Women. They fought for, for this question of married women and the nationality from the beginning of the 20th century, already in 1915. So the idea is that in the interwar period, uh, women that own a different nationality than their husband, they will get the nationality of their husband. And if they will um, break the couple or the, the husband will die, they will keep the nationality of their husband. And they will not be able to get back their nationality that they, were, they had at birth. And this was a really big fight in the first part of the 20th century. And for this, they, like women international associations, as well as women working inside the League or inside the UN, and uh, delegates from different uh, member states, they really organized themselves for finally having this convention in 1958. But the fight was already really big in the 1930s, although they failed at this time. So you have a lot of examples like this, where they actually had they don't have the same opinion, but at the end, they, they end up convening. You also have the, when women were um, in the 1930s at the International Arab Organization, you had a discussion about whether women should work at night or not. And you had protective feminists that will say they should not because they have already too much to do during the day. So they call it protectionism because the idea of this feminism is to, in some sort, protect women against exploitation. And then you have open door movement, which I, I guess you heard about, that is in, in England. And these women, they're really liberal and they're also um, on a high social class. And they say, no, we have some women there studying engineering and they need to work at night with the men. And if you, not, if you don't allow them, what are we going to do? And then finally, the international organization uh, actually forbid women to work at night. But it was a protective thing. So you have this kind of oppositions that are going on uh, through the 20th century, actually. And I think it's important to look at feminist movements in this, in this multiplicity. And Katharina, uh, just to explore a little bit more um, the role of women outside international organizations, what was the role of networks, transnational networks? What was also the role of professional activities of oh, these women? Um, okay, so there are, I think that's, that's already been mentioned a little bit, um, there are many transnational women's organizations that are important. Um, also in terms of getting women into international organizations, opening up intellectual production, broadly conceived. One organization to mention here is the International Federation of University Women, so graduates of universities who um, organize, and that really uh, receives new impulses in the 1920s. Um, those networks can be very important for individual women, one example here would be, again, Morris Tate, um, the African-American scholar who actually goes to Oxford on a scholarship um, from the American Association of University Women. And that's a hard-fought scholarship. And she um, has allies within that organization that make it possible for her as an African-American to go and study in Oxford. That was by no means uh, a certainty. So 
um, those networks can really open up um, really important resources for individual uh, biographies. Um, Oxford is hugely important for Tate. Uh, that's when she finds important academic mentors. Um, it seems that she sort of conceptualized her first book at Oxford. So these, these networks um, are really important um, for individual biographies, which is ultimately what we're looking at in the case of women in academia. And so that will be outside international organizations. So I think, yes, especially the International Federation of University Women is important. But you can also look at uh, pan-Africanist organizations. Uh, there are many important women thinkers who, for example, speak at pan-Africanist conferences, at congresses, who are also tightly enmeshed in these kinds of organizational networks that are also internationalist. Um, and then finally, and maybe a little bit of a counterpoint here, some, sometimes those, those networks are, are also problematic. Uh, just because you have a network doesn't necessarily mean it has certain values, so that's maybe something to highlight as well. Just because we are the library at the UN and you mentioned Florence Wilson, um, uh, she was a librarian, and uh, her profession actually um, was important also uh, in terms of contribution for the development of uh, uh, international thoughts. Uh, can you just explain us a little bit more about it, please? So I already um, talked a little bit about this issue of knowledge and access to knowledge and facts in the 20th century, the idea that you have a more democratic world, you have an expanded franchise, you have at least the, um, the uh, aspiration to make more democratic foreign policy. How do you do that when you have a public that is often ill-informed, etc.? So one avenue is to increase access to information and to just ensure that you have a better informed public opinion. And that's why librarianship is important. And I, I think I would rather call it information management because you have other movements such as the documentation movement, which is closely linked to Belgian internationalism, but which actually has the, the ambition at least to classify and to sort the world's knowledge, to make any kind of knowledge retrievable and accessible. Um, and that's why Florence Wilson's ambition to build a world-class research library at the League is important also in theoretical terms because it's, it signals the um, aspiration that the League should be based on this, let's call it democratic view of policy formation. But one also has to be careful here because it's also a very technocratic view potentially because the assumption is that public opinion is ill-informed and needs to be improved. So Wilson is very much connected to these strands of um, theorizing in democratic thought and I think she had a practical answer to this problem of a democratic foreign policy which is to just create um, American style, very open, very service-oriented information provision here in Geneva. For you as researchers, what are the challenges uh, to study and to restore the role of women and their contribution for the development of international thought. So one very practical issue that I have is to find images, <laughs> images of women. It's very, very difficult. Um, to the best of my knowledge, there's only one image of Florence Wilson, and that's not even a, a photograph. It's, it's just a drawing. Um, so women don't always leave the kind of archival record that we would like them to. Um, 
the other issue that I have found is that sometimes, even if women published, um, they sometimes publish pamphlets, other kind of gray literature that is hard to find. And then in a, in a library, you need a very, very good research library to actually get, get at those publications. Um, but actually, in the round, I think once you start looking, it's surprising what you can find. Um, another woman I would really like a picture of is Lucy Simmon. If anybody has one, then let me know. But uh, but that those are just some of the challenges. But I actually think the opportunities are bigger than the challenges um, because there is a lot of material out there. I was surprised by that. Yeah, when you <laughs> when you start looking, you de you definitely find so so much. And I think with the street names, uh, the project, we really understood this. At the beginning, when the feminist association, Nesquad, came to us and said, we want an 100 women, we are like, oh, this is going to be difficult. 100 women following the criteria of Geneva, which means the person needs to be dead for at least 10 years and has substantively changed uh, the local history. So we say, OK, we're going to start to look, but we're not sure. And we're 10 historians in the project. All of us have it, having different specializations. And we say, okay, we're going to start looking, but we're not sure uh, we're going to be able to find 100. And then after six months, we were like, we could have put 300. When you realize this, it's actually very beautiful. Then more specifically on women in international organizations and women in the Secretary of the League in the UN, I think what is sometimes difficult is that, as you say, they don't have this habit of giving their archives. And you have so many men that had um, higher or even not so high role in these organizations that when they retire, they go back to their university or to national archives and they say, okay, I have something for you, I give it to you. And women, they really don't have this tendency. So you have a few that will write their autobiography or things like this, but it's much more difficult to find these personal things that you obviously want because you want to tell their stories. Um. My final question is a little bit, is non-academic. Can you just uh, tell us about the relevance today of your research, why it's relevant for us? So there, there is this quote that I like very much from Glenda Schluga. She's a, an historian, she's quite renowned. And she said, the lost and silenced contribution to women of inter in international relations. So of course we have to bring light, but the way we have to bring light is exactly not to idealize them and to look at them in their multiplicity, in this, uh, this so many backgrounds that you can find. It's also work collectively, I think, to do it because, and that's what the project told me, the, the project with the, with the Sanzel, because as they were organizing to, to be able to have things done inside international organization and on the international ground, and actually when you organize, you can do so much more. So I think it's also about uh, working collectively. Um, well, I think, first of all, it is important for organizations to know their history, um, especially with uh, well, the, the League of Nations Library or the UN Library itself. Um, a lot of these organizations that employ women are coming to their centenary. Um, the Council on Foreign Relations, Chatham House, all these foreign policy think tanks, the first wave of the 1910s, 1920s, all of these organizations are now at a point where they look at their history and actually are interested in, in knowing about whether they employed any women. And sometimes the institutional knowledge is, is just not there in a sort of shape that can be easily retrieved. So I think that is an important contribution that professional historians have to make to help organizations understand their own history. 
But um, more widely, I think, um, I, first of all, I also completely agree with um, Miriam. It's important not to idealize these women, to kind of expect, oh, we will find some women and, and then we'll sort of discover this incredible progressive heritage that, that may, just not, it may just not work out like that. And I think that's, that's also important for organizations to, to know that. But um, I think one thing that this kind of work teaches us to do is to think about knowledge in slightly different ways, to understand that um, maybe a, the decision to run a library in a certain way or to uh, report on a library cataloging system or classification system is actually potentially a contribution that has an impact on international politics broadly conceived. Um, the ability to read texts differently, to kind of look for meaning that is maybe not so apparent initially. I think that's an important skill that can lead to a more sort of wide, to a wider conceptualization or vision for international politics. Today, apparently, uh, if, if we take into consideration the uh, manuals, the textbooks on international relations that were published, apparently only 3% of the authors of these textbooks are women. And I think that the most cited women are Susan Strange, Anna Arendt, and Rosa Luxemburg. Um, do you think that tomorrow we will be able to have uh, manuals with more women? That would be great. Um, I think to change the canon is incredibly difficult. There's a lot of resistance. And I think some of the objections are justified there because obviously if you include some people instead of others, you have to ask a question, well, who are we going to get rid of then in our little textbook or our anthology? Um, I think that is a process that needs to be long-term. Long um, it, it will by necessity be contentious, and, and that's a good thing. So I think if we can have that discussion, that is, that is an important start. And maybe the problem is with canons, in and of themselves. Uh, canons are always reductive, they leave out a lot of context, and the idea that you have great texts that teach you everything you need to know is, is maybe problematic in and of itself, and if we can contribute to that discussion, then I think that's, that's an important step, and I'd be happy with that. Yeah, I agree, nothing to add. Great, so uh, apparently the best discussions are the discussions that are leaving more questions at the end uh, that at the beginning. I think we can actually uh, close our discussion here. Thank you, and I wish you a very good day. Here you go. Hope you enjoyed this library talk. If you want to know more about this topic or about the projects that were mentioned, we linked all the resources in the episode's description. Thank you very much for joining and see you very soon on the next page.